Welcome to the Digital Transformer Podcast, your number one podcast on digital innovation, transformation, and venture building. We help entrepreneurs and corporate innovation leaders like you gain the knowledge and skills you need to build the leading digital businesses of your industry. My name is Kilian Karash, and today I talk to Daniel Hahnemann, CEO and co-founder of Wundertax. Daniel went from building Food Panda in Hong Kong to founding Wondertax, one of the leading text softwares in Germany. But his story has a twist that taught him many lessons. In our podcast, we talk about what his experience as a refounder taught him about succeeding as an entrepreneur, what most entrepreneurs and intrapreneurs get wrong when starting out, and growth strategies on how to grow your business 60% year over year without increasing your costs. I hope you enjoy this episode. And if you do, please share it. Awesome to have you, Daniel. Give me the context that makes me understand the person and the founder that you became in your life. Hi, Kilian. Nice, uh, nice to be here. Well, it started all in, in Hong Kong. I was born and raised there. I attended the German-Swiss International School. My dad's German. My mom's from Taiwan. And I graduated there with my Abitur, with my German high school diploma. Moved to Germany uh, with uh, when I was 17. Attended BHU. So I did my bachelor's there. I did my exchange semester in Beijing. So it was very much you know, marked by, by moving around and uh, with a very international background. I then went back to Hong Kong and uh, actually started my career at Rocket Internet, uh, which made me, uh, which where I acted as a CFO of the Food Panda Hong Kong organization. So from the very beginning, I was really tossed into cold water and uh, it was a very hands-on experience that I had, uh, which is where I really, you know, got involved in in the numbers like I mean we all theoretically learned about it in university but I really had that hands-on you know thrown into cold waters fixed numbers make the numbers work uh, in at Food Panda and that's also where I fell in love with startups I uh, moved to Berlin as as you do of course <laughs> if you want to uh, be in the startup scene um, did a bit of Bit, did a bit of uh, freelancing in the in the in the finance space, but then I also moved into, uh, yeah, I, I founded a startup uh, with my classmate uh, David back in two thousand end of two thousand fifteen, beginning of two thousand sixteen. We launched the our tax tool uh, with the very German name Studentensteuererklärung, uh, which completely went viral. We started uh, it's a tax tool with which you can hand in your tax return, uh, starting with with uh, your study years in Germany. There are special tax exemptions. There, typically, you can deduct all your study costs uh, so that you can later claim them when you start working. Uh, this went completely viral, like I said, and we really focused on, you know, like this digital product, growing this digital product. So I also pivoted my career, my career focus from more, you know, like entrepreneurial finance into more, you know, the whole growth aspect, uh, digital growth aspect uh, of, of startups. I did everything there, built up the team, did the tracking, like really hands on, but then also uh, more strategic, more management. Uh, with with Wundertax, and I left the company actually at uh, after two years uh, at Wundertax. We raised around, by the way, as well with Capnamic and Pro Founders, a, a fund from Cologne and from 
from uh, London. Uh, but then after two years, like me and my co-founder, we kind of like figured out we had different views, strategic views on the company and where the direction it was going. So after a few mediation sessions, we actually decided that it would be better to, to go our separate ways. We all left in a very you know, amicable manner, which I will go, circle back on. And I actually uh, went, uh, I founded a co-working space here in Berlin, did that for a year. But in that, there I was back, you know, very uh, in that entrepreneurial finance. And I always knew it would be more of an interim role uh, because it was, uh, uh, because I wanted to stay in the digital growth area. So I then moved to to Amsterdam for four years, where I actually joined a ex-colleague from Food Panda, uh, and we built up a moving platform uh, called Scan Movers. Uh, so we were a lead gen company for for moving companies, and then after a while, we noticed okay, we kind of hit a plateau with organic growth, so we started to actually do a buy and build strategy. So we bought a local competitor, became market leader in the Netherlands, bought a insolvent moving platform from Berlin, uh, which was focused on international moves. And then we looked at the data there and saw, okay, the biggest supplier of leads was actually a different com uh, company, one based in Australia, which we then bought as well. Uh, and that was, you know, like, it was an amazing learning experience. But after a while, I was like, okay, if I wanted to, you know, buy up companies and, and merge them, I would have become a banker uh, or stayed, a, stayed in finance. But that wasn't the case. Uh, I, I then looked, I did a bit of uh, freelance jobs. I did a few interim CMO stuff. And while I was, you know, hustling around, I, I got back in touch with our, with our investors back in the day. Like I said, we still had a good relation. I still have a good relation with my co-founder, my ex-co-founder. But by then he's already left. And the new managing director came in. Uh, he said, you know, the company... Uh, that he it was clear that he left he resigned up until the end of 2021 so i actually um asked the investors like hey guys what's the plan and i was really asking from a uh, i was a shareholder a worried shareholder and you know one thing led to another it fit really well and i came back in 2022 beginning of 2022 uh as a we called it refounder and uh i basically had a quite untypical restructuring mandate, uh, which was basically not cutting costs or or bringing uh, or making the company profitable because it was already profitable, but to actually bring it back into a growth path. So it was more of a restruct a, a, a startup restructuring, you know, uh, bringing it into the into that growth area. So here we are, uh, one year later. <laughs> one year later. Yeah. Cool. Awesome. And you mentioned when we spoke first that your personal background has affected quite a bit also the way you built companies. Um, yeah. What you said before is that, you know, you've grown up in, in Hong Kong and like then moved to Germany and Hong Kong, you've been a bit of, let's say, an outsider, so to speak, because you were not yeah. like 100% Hong Kong Chinese. And then on the other hand, no, in Germany, I, you're not, let's say, the 100% German, even though you speak German fluently. Yeah. How did that impact the way you, you build companies? So um, to, to fill out your point, to illustrate your point, actually in Hong Kong, they speak a dialect called Cantonese. I'm, uh, because I attended the German school, uh, and uh, as you can hear, my English is, you know, 
uh, international school English. I had, my mom actually really emphasized speaking Mandarin with me, which which is her native tongue, which is because she's from Taiwan. And I never learned Cantonese, which is embarrassingly embarrassing when I when I meet other Hong Kong people because I'm like I was born and raised in Hong Kong and so so for the Europeans out there for the Germans out there it's like growing up in Switzerland and only being able to speak Hochdeutsch uh, that and and meeting other Swiss people they would be like how did you not learn Swiss German so so it's, it's, the equivalent is quite quite strong and of course coming to Germany not never having lived here it was quite a culture shock when I first came to VHU like no doubt from eight million people down down to 8,000 people uh, in that little little village by the Rhine. It was culture shock, yeah, absolutely. Um, being also like from mixed heritage, there was the, the whole moving between cultures is definitely a big topic for me. And I would say, you know, like how I built companies, how I would say like, the, you know, it's, it's, we're talking all about like diversity nowadays and unconscious bias and stuff like that. And I would just say, I never consciously addressed my unconscious bias if i'm especially like now of course of course i do I, i'm much more into it into it and, and and read up on it but like in the past i never really consciously addre addressed my unconscious bias but if but if i look back and connect the dots all my hires in, in my startup stories were all incredibly diverse. Like Wundertag's, our first CTO was a she was a was a female CTO, which is if you know anything about like you know developers, it's a rare breed. So she was our first CTO. We our second hire was a our second developer was from Poland. The third one was uh, was also. A female developer, and nowadays our our uh, at Wundertax, our board, our our, our management board, our C level, we're all male, but like two of them, or, or including me, are not you know the typical white cis male hetero, uh, etc. And the one who is is actually the only one of two in the whole company of 26. So our company is incredibly diverse. We have 50% female headcount. I don't. I, out of the 26, I, I counted it once. We have, I think, uh, 16 different nationalities. So it was. It was. It's. It's very fascinating. It's, it never happened intentionally, just because I, I. I think that unconscious bias was never that strong in my in my head. Uh, just to recap, you know, unconscious bias is when you hire people that look and and think like you, and because like all the different different experiences I had, I just think I'm able to adapt more to the people that I'm that I'm interviewing that I've talked about too. So actually in Wundertax, we've hired seven people in the last year, uh, of which we had, and we had zero rejections um, because we had a 100% acceptance rate. Uh, and it was simply because, you know, our team is so diverse we were able to to actually you know attract talent that saw themselves in the team structure that saw themselves in the team so we're very proud of that and 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 throughout the history of when I, how i built and hired people this is a this is a, a recurring theme mm. absolutely and i think it's impressive because 
these days like we're talking so much about war of talents like not being able to attract the right talents or that they're that the people you want to attract that they're often like having really like so many opportunities on the table that you know even as like one of the most outstanding companies it's really hard to ultimately get that person signed on board and then you guys have an acceptance rate as you said of 100 percent and i think one of the contributing factors in this sense is like that especially like talking about my generation gen z there's so much let's say we're in a way like a bit of born globals given that we are we're connected like so much through the internet through social media we see what's going on around the world non-stop and this is something where people are like hey this is something i'm used to so i'm also seeking for that and i think this is then really becoming competitive advantage if you have the possibility and if you set up a team that way that diversity is not only let's say a buzzword but really is is lived in the in the company culture and um but i think it also brings about quite a few challenges so did you ever have that problem so to speak that people were too diverse in a sense and were really quite working well together or was there was that never an issue so this is quite interesting i would say like it's an interesting question like can it kind of be too diverse like i mean yes we've had debates about this like i mean i've had we've had people being like no i want to hire this person because this person is is more diverse than the other and then i looked back at the team and i was like hey man like this is is diversity really an issue at our company and it's it's like so so, so it's kind of a it's kind of a shifting scale like this was this was a few years ago but like it, it it's a shifting scale in that sense. Has it ever led to conflict internally because people have differing views? I would say no, because it was very, like we've always had, like I've always tried to foster a culture in companies where it was based on no ego in discussions. Like, you know, um, because I'm really like, like I'm one of the first people happy to admit that I'm wrong. Uh, if somebody presents me some facts saying like, okay, Daniel, your project sucks because I ha- my project does this, 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 yours it does all these three points worse. I'm like, okay, go do this project. Like I'm, I'm happy to give that up. So I would say, you know, having like a very, like, like having very differing viewpoints at our company when it comes to debates and, and discussions was always very helpful because there was not no big ego uh, playing playing a role here. It was always a healthy healthy discussion. So it's been more the company values and the way you you as a founder led the company that were ultimately so to speak the the cultural norms that formed the basis of discussion of work of yeah teamwork. So in a, in a way, the the company culture supersedes the. Um, the individual culture, so to speak, or the background, the cultural background of that person. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I hope to to say so. Not that it's not important, but like I, I would say that you know the positive company values uh, always were more important in these kind of discussions than the personal ego or personal cultural values. Yeah. Now let's focus a bit more on, on the company you founded and, and the founder's story. 
Yeah. Because as you also alluded to, it has an interesting touch that we'll touch upon in a second. But before we come to that, let's start at the beginning. What was the trigger that led to the creation of WonderTex? And what was the major challenge that you guys faced in the beginning? So the trigger was um, actually at university, the first seed was laid. So it was first sown. Um, the, uh, so there's an there's a insurance brokerage in Germany which goes to universities and does presentations on deductibility of study costs so you can reclaim them once you start working. And their whole goal is, hey, we're going to do this presentation and then not give you any guide. They're just theoretically explaining what you can deduct, but they don't tell you how to do it. And at the end of the day, they want you to do a one-on-one -on -one session with them so they can sell you an expensive uh, Berufsunfähigkeitsversicherung, which is a, a employment disability insurance. And so, so what happened? So, so we were like, okay, this is kind of weird because this is a, you know, it's just an upselling mechanism instead of actually helping the students. And we were like, okay, this can't we build a tool that automates this whole thing? Um, because once we were trying to do it ourselves with Elsa, with that theoretical basis, we were like, okay, this is awful. This is the worst experience ever. So we looked it up. We we built the first tool um, where we where we put all the fields. We wrote all the fields exactly how you would, you know, the user experience was based on real life experiences. So it wasn't weird tax language, but it was like how many kilometers is your university away? You enter your address, you enter that address and in the background, Google API, the Google Maps API would calculate the distance. Yes. So um, that was the trigger. Um, we posted it in a, a bunch of Facebook groups and I've never seen a Facebook post being shared 50 times. Uh, which was like back in the day when people still used Facebook, that was 2016. Uh, but like 50 people shared the, the posts, you know, like that was the, the top. But like we posted in a lot of these university groups and there were just so many shares, comments, interests, and it really went viral. You know, like our first numbers, we started with a, with a, with a free model so you could hand it in for free and it just went through the roof. That was really impressive. And this sounds really, really like a luxury problem to have, but anyone who's ever founded a startup will, will know what I mean, is we were spoiled for choice. We were like, okay, what do we do next? What, was the, what are the next features that we're going to develop? Because they were just, it was just such an open field that we could do. Uh, so... I think one of the biggest challenges in my early founding days was the whole concept of, I call it nowadays, call it intentionality. I call it that because I believe one of the largest time wasters and, 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 and you know, inefficiencies in a startup is actually working on projects which lead to nowhere. So this has happened in my throughout my whole career. I've seen this so many times where people were like, "I have a great idea. I'm gonna, I'm gonna work on it, or we're gonna work on it as a team." And then it kind of like, you know, doesn't doesn't isn't finished to completion because you know there's another shiny object. So you work on ten different projects, eighty percent, none of them get finished. You still wasted 
time, whilst companies with laser focus, you know, do one project after the other and and uh, move just move faster than you. At the beginning of our our startup journey, it was that was I would say the biggest biggest time and efficiency waster uh, that we had. I think it's so curious that like I mean a lot of people really have to let's say spent a lot of time figuring out the product market fit i think for you guys interesting enough that wasn't really the issue like it seems like you really had like almost instant product market fit but then i think what you touched upon is i think is it's it's a crucial learning that a lot of people then have to do later only once they've really understood how their their company works is to really have that laser focus and i know from personal experience it's tough because you you think like everyone tells you hey you have to be on i don't know instagram tiktok you have to have a blog you have to do podcasts just talking about marketing right and then there's like five internal projects you have to do and like basically everyone suggests you hey you got to be on every platform you have to do everything at the same time and it just completely pulls you in every single direction possibly imaginable and so you really lose complete focus. And as you said, like if you do 80%, like if you spend 80% of your time doing five different projects, how much like percentage did you actually allocate to that project? And then halfway through, you basically just stop because you have another project coming up and you're like, okay, I have to divert my attention even more, which then really leads to you being incredibly, incredibly busy, but you're not getting shit done, like at all. Nothing really moves exactly. forward. Absolutely. So I, I had this, um, in, I had these interesting uh, projects when I was doing like, you know, what I said after, after scam movers, where I was doing a bit of like freelancing, I had these interesting projects as well, a lot of B2B lead gen businesses. Uh, so one of them was like, you know, in the, in the factory programming. Uh, so, so programming like factory machines for production. And it was very interesting because we tried to get like lead gen. We did like Google ads and stuff like that. It worked to a certain degree, but the thing is they didn't like, it didn't move the needle. Yeah, it was very nice to have some inbound leads to be present on platforms, but this very senior manager just said, Hey, look, I think the best thing to do for us is to go on, um, to go on fairs and talk to the people directly because, uh, these guys are super old school uh, SME people. And that was impressive because he really killed that darling because he loved the whole Google ads thing and, and every, and it was fun for him, I would say as well, but it was just so, yeah, it was quite drastic to say like, yeah, like, okay, this is not something, something this kind of distracts us more like the opportunity costs are larger than the, than the, than the gain it brings. So, not not just looking at the cash yeah what i really like in this respect is this notion of and and it's, and it's been described in a book which is called uh, the one thing uh which basically says what is the number one thing that if you succeed in it makes basically everything else completely irrelevant and i think yeah. it's a really really like you gotta challenge yourself really badly to really find that yeah. thing but once you do as you said, with affairs, then it can completely change the trajectory of a company. Yeah. I mean, the other way around, like, I mean, I've, I've seen companies like old school German B2B, deep, deep SME companies 
as suddenly creating TikTok accounts where you're just like, who are you talking to? <laughs> you know, like, and it's 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 the exact opposite of solving the one problem because <laughs> you're not like how how is this in any way relevant? Yeah, and it wasn't. And the thing is, like, looking at these videos for like trade machines, it wasn't even. It wasn't even like recruiting videos, right? It was it was videos to promote their pro product on TikTok. <laughs> yeah, that's if precisely. If your thing, biggest right? problem is sales, sales. If your problem is sales in that business, you're not going to open a TikTok account, right? It's the exact opposite of the one problem that you have. Absolutely. Now, let's change gears a bit because, as you alluded to. Sure. Your story has a bit of a of a twist because you get you went out there, you built this product that literally overnight really let's say went viral and after growing the company for a while, you then decided to leave, which is something that is very unusual for a founder. And yeah, you basically decided, hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna co-found another company. Yeah. Why? So I mean everyone's heard this everyone in the startup space has heard this before. The number one reasons why startup fails are because of co-founder uh, differences, right? Um, we had co-founder differences and it was quite clear from uh, I would say you know like like one year in one and a half years in that we had different differing views on it when it comes to you know risk when it comes to growth etc meaning that we just you know we, we didn't see eye to eye on a lot of subjects well so what happened was essentially that we we had to talk about it right we had to address it and we were very lucky to have understanding investors and uh, frankly uh, speaking grown-ups in the company because we were young and, and first-time founders and we had grown-ups in the company who were able to do a mediation session who were able to be like okay let's get two of you guys into the room and let's talk about it and the investors and me and and david we were all on the same page we were all on the same side we weren't on the same page but we were on the same side we we, we all wanted what was best for the company and um at the time we then decided okay david is in a better position uh, uh, internally in the company internally and i i also took it as a chance to pursue new new uh new opportunities uh, of course it was a very emotional you know separation i was called a couple count couples counseling but it was ultimately back in the day we decided that that was the best thing to do and we i've definitely heard much messier stories we you know wrapped it up we did nice handover we shook hands uh, i was invited to every party after that as well uh, so i've heard much messier stories and i'm really proud of how we were able to you know overcome this how did you personally cope with that situation? Because in a way, it's you basically let your child go. In the worst way possible. <laughs> Instead of thinking about it, I went into a new into a new adventure. I went straight head on into the next thing, which was uh, scaling spaces. Um, so it was 
amazing. Like, I mean, I mean, the whole thing with Wunder Tax, I mean, I was still in Berlin. I was still able to meet up with the team and everything. Of course, you give up your baby. But again, we were on the same side. Like, you know, I tried to support the best way I could. I did my, I you know, like introductions, which were interesting. I did uh, the talks with them, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, also for my successor, I, I also, you know, talked one-on-one. It was painful, like every breakup was. Uh, how I coped with it was, you know, like thinking about what I wanted to do next. Uh, but at the same time, I was working again on this new project, which was the co-working space, which is again like the worst way possible to to cope with it. It's like a, it's a it was kind of like my rebound company, if you want to keep right. that <laughs> metaphor of of uh, of dating. So it was like my rebound company, um, but. Um, I loved it. Yeah, it was it was great. It was a it was a per, it was a really good way to to you know continue because um, it was clear that it would be interim. It would be interim uh, because it was this one project, this one big property that we wanted to to renovate and and build out in West Berlin in Charlottenburg. Like, if given that you say it's you did it in the worst way possible. That to me kind of suggests that in hindsight you would have think, done things differently. Look, I would say in hindsight there's there are no real regrets, but for my mental and and physical health, it would have probably been better um, instead of going from one stressful thing into the next stressful thing without really a, a gap in between, was to maybe you know take off a month or two uh, to actually you know like digest it to actually you know like take care of yourself to get back on track because that's also a, a mistake that first-time founders do a lot is you know the company's not your world you know it might might seem like the whole your whole existence and your whole identity is bound up with the company but you know from one day to the next it's it's gone uh and and nobody cares so like don't let it be don't let the company where you that you found or work at become your identity uh, because in the long term that won't work out <laughs> i think that's a very powerful message because a lot of founders especially young a young a lot of young founders spend late nights working in their company they neglect and i've personally been there you neglect your person like your your friendship circle you neglect your health um yeah. and then as you said from one day to the other it can like all go south and disappear and exactly. so to, to really strike that balance is i think a, a very crucial yeah. point and decision to take again a conscious decision coming back to intentionality, intentionality. what you said earlier on uh being intentional exactly. about saying yes i do this right now but i do it within these boundaries and also being intentional about saying, now I stop yeah. this project. Exactly. Exactly. Now, what, what I found interesting that afterwards, you kind of came back as you, as you alluded to in the, in the beginning. And your mission was to basically put the company onto a growth trajectory that it hasn't, or it hadn't seen before. What you told me is that Wondertex at that time grew 60% year over year at flat costs, which is incredible, which is an outstanding achievement. A lot, a lot of, a lot of companies and startups would dream about. What was the secret behind it? So 
I think what was extremely, well, first of all, I couldn't have done it with, with the team. So it wasn't just me coming back, but it was also my uh, back then head of online marketing and uh, senior engineer, which I, you know, in December of last year, sat down with in, in Berlin and said like, hey, guys, Undertax is back on the menu. And they were like, man, you've smoked too much weed in Amsterdam. And it was, it was, it was really like, they were like, what are you, what are you talking about? Like, and then I was like, no, 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 no this is for real. And um, they were like, yeah, how, yeah, we're in, let's do it. And they came back and I have to also give a big shout out to our team, um, that the existing team. So I, I didn't know anybody anymore, right? It was, it was about 20 people in the team. I didn't know anybody. And they really, you know, management transitions are hard, right? Like it's, it's always connected to people leaving and stuff like that. But I'm really proud. Like we, we had two people leave, but that was because we also made a tech stack redundant um, because there were just too many. Two people left, but we also hired seven people and out of the 20, the rest all stayed. So speaking of re reducing tech stack, that was one thing that we really did. Uh, strongly, which is reducing complexity. Uh, we said, again, intentionality, we said there's, you know, our core product is taxes. We do a badass tax tool and we cut out all the non-essentials. Um, so we removed, you know, like everything that was, you know, hosted by us, everything that was built by us we tried to outsource. We tried to get in, get software. So one example is um, identity management, right? Um, so 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 in the sim most simple form, the the, the logins, the social logins. Um, that was we had an own tool built for that, like an in-house tool where we said, okay, like this is not our core product. So we we said, okay, let's get off to zero, which is the best in class, which cost us. A bunch of money it costs us sixty thousand euros per year, but it saves in whole FTE. Plus, these guys do it way better than we will ever do it. Uh, it saves us an FTE. It saves us opportunity costs, and it com and it continues developing forward. Same thing with an even more graspable non-tech example is we moved into our a into scaling spaces. So uh, this was a bit of a you know portfolio synergy, I would call it, let's call it that. Um, no, we moved into scaling spaces. Um, of course, my, my successor, uh, Martin, uh, I'm also at scaling spaces, also a very good, good uh, contact with him. You know, I contacted him and said like, Hey, do you guys have an office for us? He had a perfect one for us and said, okay, let's move here. Because I also said, Hey, our product manager was also doing his office management job. And I was saying like, Hey man, like, ordering toilet paper and coke is not your job right we're not a office management company cut out the non-essentials and focus on what you're good at um and this is hard this is this is in a very luxurious position because like i mentioned our company is profitable and this was a luxurious position to do to be able to spend sixty thousand euros on off zero um if if we already have people on our payroll uh, who can build it right a lot of startups struggle with this. A lot of startups are like, okay, we don't have cash. We can't use, we can't invest into these amounts. But I do believe that there's a kind of like 
keep your tech stack low, keep your tech stack lean and automate as much as possible. And there's a tendency, especially in Berlin, to build big teams. Uh, to, to the first question I get at, at parties from other startup people is like, how big is your team? And it's kind of a bragging thing. And if you hire two, one meteor engineer, yeah, like let's say that's the basis, and you hire a second one, you're not going to get double the output, right? You're going to get maybe you know 80% more output. And I there's a there's a you know abnehmende Grenznutzen like there's a it plateaus the output plateaus quite fast. Um, and I always say, okay, instead of hiring two medium engineers, hire hire one senior engineer, right? Like because reporting lines, uh, more people increases complexity. It gets more complicated. Everyone has to communicate more, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So I actually be do believe that having a small team is also very, very helpful. So long story short, reduce complexity both in in tech and operations. Uh, automate as much as possible. Keep your team mean and lean. Um, there's a Discord. The company has a very good blog post on this. They worked exactly that one. Then there's a very inspiring podcast by the by the founder. He said they once a whole quarter stopped hiring and said, "Okay, let's figure out if we can if we can fit, uh, if we can uh, solve our problems not by getting more people, but by actually working smarter and get." looking at tools like intentionally restricting themselves from hiring people very good podcast it's but from um how i built this uh and so this is one big block of how we achieved this incredible growth in the in the last quarter and the in the third quarter of the of the year and before and you jump into is, the second just one one thought also yes, from my yes. side what you described, I think, is it's so important because it's, as you said, there's this tendency to really build up a lot of complexity in a startup, which A, slows down processes. But then as well, I think given today, there's so many tools out there that already, let's say, make it possible to rapidly create ID management, to rapidly even, let's say, create entire MVPs based on the Figma's file, which so that you don't even have to code many things. And so really, let's say first doing your due diligence and figuring out what is it that I ultimately really have to build versus to simply do like a plug and play solution um, is going to save you, I believe in the long run, a lot of money and a lot of time essentially. Um, because just plugging things back into place um, is much faster than, let's say, having a product roadmap where for a year your engineers are really focused on things that could have been integrated within a day or two if you would have just used the um, plug-and-play software. And then, as you also mentioned, you have to also, let's say, calculate the opportunity costs because if I can spend that one year developing the software to actually solve my customer problems, then I can move much faster, can generate revenues much faster and uh, also keep a lean setup. So I think it's, it's a very and, crucial point. And what, what the, what the, what people always forget and what I find super important in this as well is like 
if it's a good company, if it's a good supplier that you choose, they have exactly the same thinking and they're focusing on that product alone. So looking at Auth0, they will, they, every, every day their product improves. So, and if we would build it ourselves, we would build the minimum solution uh, to make it work. And then we have, still have to maintain it. We have so much opportunity costs and it's not even improving. It's, it's going to be the same for the next 10 years. Right. But their product is literally improving every day. It's the same thing with, with the co-working space to get a non-tech. They, they like, if I would manage my own company, uh, own office, like I would, you know, like, there are 10,000 more important things for me on my agenda instead of like, you know, refilling, refilling the, the muesli uh, <laughs> box. And here every single day, there's, there's hot coffee. There's, so there's, there's good muesli and it keep, they do it better than you and they, it improves and it's just much more cost efficient, much more, there's much more development there. And ultimately you build a better product as well. Yeah. And on hiring, because you also mentioned that they'd rather have one kick-ass person rather than two mediocre ones. What I recently read is in, is in the culture deck from, from Netflix. Um, she also described, hey, like, f factor in how much, let's say, potential there is if you hire that one person that might cost, let's say, way more than you, than you would be in initially willing to pay. But that person also factor in in your decision how much that person can propel the company forward. And I think that's also a crucial comparison to make. You have two employees and you compare them and one wants like 30, 40% more salary, but maybe that person is way better. And with that one person, you can, let's say, do that, build that entire one, let's say, new feature that's going to like bring in lots of new revenues, for instance, factor it in as well. Absolutely, absolutely, and and like you like you said very correctly, you know, that one person, that one senior person, might just build that one killer feature. They might just make that one decision that two mediocre people, even if they put their heads together, can't. I think what really pro like that was the tech part. The second part was so these are like let's split it up. That was like the fixed cost part, uh, but also the variable cost part. Uh, is really important. So I am from the growth area and I believe that there's no such thing as, as budgets that you should, the only restricting factor in marketing budgets are, is cash flow, right? So we, as, as, as WonderTax, have a huge customer lifetime value because people come back. Taxes are really sticky. You're not going to change your provider, um, tax, tax return provider. So what happens is, is we charge 34 euros gross that's 30 about 30 euros net but people come back so the customer lifetime value is much larger than 30 euros but they only come back in the second year right so spending 60 euros today um, is cash flow negative but in year two three four it's it's p l positive right so we said what is the maximum cash flow that we uh, what is the maximum cash we can afford to invest into into uh, into customer growth versus the customer lifetime value so what are our so we oriented ourselves we put a, a a target return on advertising spend 
uh, or targets customer acquisition costs yeah as as a target and said okay and we're going to try to spend as much as possible within that customer acquisition costs yeah so what we did is every time a channel so we focused on channels and launching channels getting you know the word out so what happened is like okay at, at, at on google we reached that customer acquisition cost we reached that cost per lead that re return on advertising spend okay what's the next channel that we can do okay we did facebook so facebook when i came in facebook was active so facebook instagram the meta world uh um, google was active we did a bit of spotify ads and that was kind of it right so we launched in this year we tried to do you know everything we're an omni-channel product we're 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 everywhere so we we actually launched but we're relevant for for you know 80 percent of people so we launched reddit we launched pinterest we launched snapchat we launched uh tiktok is a huge one tiktok is a huge channel we launched uh a, a bunch of affiliate networks uh, and we just tried and tested and tested and we're always of course we invested a bit of a learning budget every single time but we tried to you know like hit that customer acquisition costs and some channels we could only spend 200 euros per month and that customer acquisition cost was already reached uh, and some channels we could spend you know like tens of thousands of euros until that target customer acquisition costs was reached but because we're also a, such a seasonal product every month is different right like our our high t high season is October. It, our high season is January to to till April because that's when people get their you know tax forms by 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 their employer. So we always looked at, at that customer acquisition cost. We always looked at that re return on advertising spend and tried to spend that ma the maximum amount of money that we could at that at that level. And did you tackle one channel after the other, or did you there intentionally go? Into oh, each. there was over. Of course, there was overlap. Like uh, our team was uh, was was launching all these channels. Like you know, the optimization and the the testing, etc., was all done concurrently. Of course, of course, like the actual launch of each channel was was not couldn't have been done on the same day. But once it one was launched, you, you know, there's an optimization phase, and then you can launch it within that optimization phase. Right. And last thing, do you have like, let's say three best practices when it comes to these digital growth strategies that you figure out along the way that really work? Yeah. Double down on, like I recently had an advisory talk with a company doing um, contract management and they did everything, they, like they're doing everything great. Like they're doing all of the best practices for B2B lead gen. But I told him like, hey, if I look at your website, this looks great. What's the problem? And he was like, we we're just not getting as many leads as we want to. And I was like, okay, did you guys really look at what works? Right. And I told them like, you're doing everything right, but you're not doubling down on what works. You know, you're just following the playbook. And I think that's something that's extremely valuable in digital growth. Double down on what works, focus on Google ads. For instance, if, most of the, that's the funny thing. Like most of the time, it's Google Ads that's gonna that's gonna work first. Double down on it. Do, if you've launched it and you're like, okay, this is it's launched, tick in the box. I'm gonna do my next channel. 
like that's not gonna that's not gonna help you if the next channel is is also just gonna take some tick in the box and it doesn't it sucks go into google like like double down on works doesn't necessarily have to be google you know what i mean double down on what works that's number that's number one i would say the second one is what i said earlier like don't define your 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 budget because that's old school marketing define what your customer acquisition costs are or um, in our case it's actually more like cost per sign up because people you know are delayed some people just wait until the last minute until they hand in their tax return define which kpi you want to which i would i call it relational kpi you you want to f want to target right cost per leads cost per sign up cost per uh, cost per uh, acquisition uh, customer acquisition cost for us but like you know focus on that don't focus on hitting your budget oh i have a hundred thousand euros left in my budget i might as well you know do a tv ad from because i need to get rid of the budget that's a waste of money that's a startup waste of money or the same thing other way around oh man this channel is not working this channel is not working um uh but i won't hit my budget unless i i continue it cut it kill your dar kill that you know kill that darling save that money go try the next thing so I would say these two are are important, are 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 big learnings and big big the the messages I would leave you with. Awesome! I think that's a perfect point to stop here. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you, Daniel, and uh, thank you for sharing your personal insights about your story as well as about the numerous learnings you made along your journey. And I wish you all the best for what's ahead. And yeah. Hope to really see you soon on the podcast again. Kilian, it was a pleasure. It was really fun. For everyone out there, if you want to connect, you can find me on LinkedIn, of course. And thanks so much, Kilian. Cheers. Bye-bye.